0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Agriculture is an art and it's a science. As we move into the 21st century, we're seeing people starting to care a lot more where their food comes from. In this episode, we're lucky enough to be speaking with Randall Breen, a farmer from Echo Valley Farms in Queensland that takes a holistic approach to producing ethical, sustainable, and high quality food products. Welcome to the show, Randall. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really happy to have you on, mate. This is going to be a ripper of an episode. So, can you tell us a little bit about Echo Valley Farm and the produce that you guys are able to offer?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, we, Echo Valley Farm, we're a what would be classified as a small farm with 300 acres. We're located just west of the Great Dividing Range in southeast Queensland in the southern Downs region. We are on bungalung land, actually, of the, our traditional owners, and we farm a stacked integrated farming system is how we describe it. So we do a whole range of running of livestock and, and uh, different farming enterprises. So what we're trying to do is... Uh, farm in harmony with our landscape, and so yeah. In terms of the the products we produce at the moment, we're producing pastured eggs, which means eggs produced from hens that live out on the pasture. We produce grass-fed and finished beef and pastured pork. Um, so all of our animals are free-range, moving nomadically across the landscape. And currently, which an ever-evolving thing, but currently they're the three products that we produce.
0: So mainly meat products and not vegetable products? Yeah, primarily
1: at this stage, yeah, protein-based farm. However, we do do a a bit of cropping and producing. So I guess in terms of vegetable production or cereal production, it's opportunistically that we would grow those things. Last summer during the peak Mm. drought, we actually produced a small crop of pumpkins and beans and some sweet corn just in an effort to get ourselves through the drought period actually we had a small amount of water allocation on this farm so we were able to water a small area and focus on finding viability there for us as we were battling through the um the driest period in our region in recorded history yeah so the, the mm. probably that the way in which we're using plants in terms of cropping and and growing things is really to produce fodder for our livestock that and to and building soil health so our farm like many in the region, has been heavily over-farmed through industrial methods. And when we came here seven years ago, we started the process of regenerating the landscape. So we're in the very early early stages of healing our soil so that then hopefully as we move forward, we can add more and more different elements to our farming enterprise.
0: Mm. And on your website, it says that you practice the four goods Yeah. Can you describe those for us? Absolutely.
1: So the four goods is basically we would describe them as our guiding principles or testing questions. So when we're setting about to do, say, a new enterprise on the farm or do a certain activity on the farm, be that prepare a paddock to to plant a cover crop or maybe looking at bringing in a new animal into the landscape, we use these things that we call the four goods or the four testing questions to, to work out whether that's the best decision to be made. And so there the four goods is what decision we're going to make. Are they good for the animal, good for the land, good for the farmer, and ultimately good for those people who we're going to feed, the consumer or the eater? So, yeah, they're our four good principles. So whenever we're making decisions, we, we come back to those four goods.
0: And so I guess what you're talking about here is a kind of an ethical and a holistic approach to farming, Randall.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we take a holistic focus on what we do and, and an ethical one. You know, those four goods are really critical to us because we see, we see that the act of growing food as more than just a process of, you know, planting seeds or, or growing animals, that we, we need to look at it holistically, as in W-H-O-L-E the whole and understand how the decisions that we make as farmers or as participants in our food system can have unintentional consequences. And so by having those four goods, we can come back to them and work out and really help to test the decisions that we're making. So yeah, in terms of ethical, I guess we see, you know, it's often questioned whether someone who's producing meat can be an ethical farmer. And I guess what we're trying to do is we're trying to enable those animals in the, in the process of ultimately becoming a food source for, for human consumption, but in, in the process and the journey towards that end harvest, that they're able to fully express their natural instincts as an animal. So we see some pretty horrendous images of animals in feedlots or, or industrial sheds, whereas our animals are always outside in the landscape In a situation and an environment where they're able to fully express their, we talk about the chookiness of the chook or the the pigginess of the pig or the cowiness of the cow, (laughs) that they're, they're, they're able to be doing not only for themselves but also for the landscape, their natural instincts. And then from that, we also, in terms of holistic, as a farmer, we see ourselves as seeking to be patient, attentive observers. Often the image of a farmer is this farmer coming in to sort of manipulate the landscape to produce our food. But really what we're trying to be is patient, attentive observers and and pick up on the cues that are being sent to us in the landscape in which we are to direct the things in which how we can produce our food in partnership with the landscape. So we're seeking to build an intimate relationship with our animals, with our landscape and with the community. That we feed, So we're not just trying to put food in boxes and send it away to, to somewhere else to be fed to people we don't know, but we see it as a critical element to our food production that we have, in, have a relationship with those people that we feed.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. You mentioned something there that was quite interesting about the fact that some people question whether or not sort of farming animals can be ethical mm. when they're going to be eventually killed for food. Essentially, yeah, that's that's exactly right. We have some family friends in my family, and they sort of they raise chickens. Yep. One of their mottos is "There's just one bad day. There's only one bad day."
1: Yep. I think that's a good way to look at it. I'd even go further that say that if it's done well, there doesn't even have to be one bad day, and and that takes a whole lot more Mm -hmm. development. That if we truly build a relationship with those animals, be it chicken pig, cow, goat, whatever, that as they've lived there, a fully enriched and long life, I think that's the other big thing. Um, a lot of people that are engaged in ethical and holistic food production aren't trying to grow animals to a production weight as quickly as they can because the benefits of those animals on their landscape is immense as well, so they're quite happy for those animals to take their time in their growth and grow naturally and but also at, at that end, at that harvest day, you know, just like picking an apple or when, when that animal's time is ready in, in its peak production point, that if we do it right, we can the animal is not even aware. So there's, it, it doesn't even experience any pain or suffering mm. as that moment when it makes its ultimate sacrifice and we, we honour that and are grateful for it. And one of those things is ensuring, you know, to add mm. to that, when we do harvest those animals that we ensure we value every element of that, that animal. Quite often in the West we just take the prime cuts and then the other stuff is wasted, whereas we very much advocate for a nose-to-tail consumption of everything that we, we turn into food and that's an honouring of that animal, I think.
0: Mm, absolutely. I think that that idea of the nose-to-tail honouring of the animal is a beautiful way and really it, it is a modern way to do it and it's also an ancient way to do it too. I think that a lot of people in ancient times were doing the same sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think if we look at some of our traditional or indigenous leaders and and communities they really did capture the the uh, the idea of honouring the animal as it sacrificed you know, provided that product for us to to gain sustenance you know and um, we can learn a lot from our indigenous heritages you know
0: absolutely and look i guess we are a plants podcast so yeah. it is nice to talk about the ethics of raising animals <laughs> but there as you've sort of spoken on growing plants is a huge part of grass-fed animals Yeah,
1: absolutely absolutely yeah so you know more importantly you know the uh the soil and the the plants, Critical to to a healthy and nutritious product at the other end. So yeah, we we don't actually start with the animal, and the, the animals that we have here at the moment could could change in the future based on what what the soil and the and the plants that we're growing at the time send up signals to us. And if we're a true patient, attentive observer, we should be able to pick up on those things and make those adjustments. So yeah, we're it for us. The animals just play a role in the healing of our landscape and so yeah in terms of plants we grow and the soil in which we grow it are really the critical elements to the whole system working.
0: Can you explain how it works that animals can actually help improve soil and sort of provide ecological benefits that plants alone can't?
1: Yeah absolutely so I think the key thing we have to do when we're trying to work out how on earth could animals be beneficial to the soil or to the plants that are growing when you know the animals are coming through and are eating them off and we would think that would be the last thing that a plant wants to experience but in actual fact <laughs> if we look at nature as a guide because nature is the perfect system you know it gets it right and there's a way of explaining the natural process as a complex adaptive system so it's so dynamic ever changing process that it's moving and shifting in ways that as as humans we think linear in a straight line you know and you know as farmers it's very difficult not to go well I've got to take this thing from this point to that point but if we can slow ourselves down and I'll come back and repeat the patient attentive observer if we can slow ourselves down and be patient and attentive and look to nature for the guide the guide what we find is That in nature, there is no no place within nature where animals and plants don't coexist. So from, you know, the South and North Mm. Poles all the way to the equator, in every environment, those things are coexisting together and they have formed a symbiotic relationship to be mutually beneficial. So when we bring – so if we've got a grass paddock, if we look to places within nature where grass is, we will see – large nomadic herbivores moving across the landscape. And so we, you know, we can't bring in bison and buffalo like there would be or elephants or those big guys, but we do have cows and we do have sheep who are, who are ruminants. And so that act of that animal mm. moving across that landscape, nipping off that grass, leaving behind its urine and its manure and its saliva in the act of biting off that grass, acts as a stimulus down into the soil which Mm. triggers microbial activity, biology, fungal, the to develop, and bacteria. And that whole symbiotic relationship builds health within the soil, but also builds plant strength. It sheds some of its roots into the soil, which traps carbon, takes it out of the atmosphere, and then it starts to regrow again. And as it regrows again, it starts to sequester more carbon again with its solar panels that are leaves. And that whole process moves over again and so that's where for us those animals are so critical in in the system so on our on our farm we all of those animals that we talked about cows pigs and chickens are working in partnership with each other and with the plants that we're growing and the soil that we're on to create well it's a dynamic natural ballet and my job really is just to help to conduct mm. that Orchestra or ballet, so that the outcomes at the other end are beneficial to the the broader environment and to the soil and the plants that we've got on our landscape.
0: Mm. And that's contrary to what a lot of people might think that animals are actually sequestering carbon in the soil.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really important. So, when people, so there's a lot of words that are used about sustainability or regenerative agriculture or agroecology. But people who have chosen to move down that way rather than, say, industrial agriculture and those images of feedlots of cows standing in a feedlot with not a blade of grass around, on bare earth, eating grains, mm. there is no question that in that scenario they are producing toxic greenhouse gases because that's not, they're not in their natural mm. environment. They're not expressing their natural, their natural instincts. They're not mimicking nature. But when we shift... Mm to a model, a regenerative model, where we start to observe what we're doing and we're patient and we're attentive and we start to see these animals and their activities, all of a sudden we we start to realise, and the science now is backing it up, that for millennia herbivores have been roaming the earth. And in actual fact, my understanding is that currently there's less herbivores on the planet today than there was 2,000 years ago. You know, we had millions upon millions of mm, wild buffalo and bison roaming the earth, but it's the way in which we're doing it. Mm. I heard a, a great line that's saying it's not the cow, mm. it's the how, and I think that's something that we need <laughs> to focus on, and that these animals, the issue is the human, and we, we try to uh, reduce the issue down to a single problem, but nature doesn't work on individual issues. It's a complex adaptive system, and she plays the long game. And so if we can try to look Mm. to her for guidance, I think all of a sudden we can start to see that agriculture can, if we choose to, be the solution to the current environmental issue, of which, unfortunately, agriculture has been the major contributor to the problem, but it can also be the solution.
0: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. I think that people are sort of becoming more and more aware of their impact upon the earth. And I think farmers are definitely right up there with those at the forefront of that a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, I think it's really exciting at the moment. Um I think the potential of where where it can take and, yeah, the things that we can do when we just take a, a simple shift. But, you know, and the reality is is that it's the consumers and the eaters that can drive this change forward because ultimately, as a farmer... Totally. I can really only produce what the consumer and the eater chooses because I can be out here banging away, moving cows around in the paddock, eating grass, but unless the consumer demands that system, unfortunately, I'm not going to survive because we have an economic imperative that has to be met as well.
0: Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about that sort of later on in the episode. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me, do you add any amendments, compost or fertilizers to your soil, Randall?
1: Okay, so yes, but in a very different way. So <laughs> we don't use any synthetic fertilizers whatsoever and we, we don't use any chemicals at all on the farm. We're not certified organic, but we've chosen not to introduce any synthetics into our soils because what we're trying to work towards is a biological farming system. So what we're always what we're seeking to build is the biology within the soil, build the health of that soil as strong as possible, be that at the bacteria, the fungus, building those interconnected pathways within the soil so it can talk to our plant roots and it's such a fascinating world that what goes on beneath our feet. Mm -hmm. So what we do in order to feed that is first and foremost we pass nearly everything that we intend to fertilise onto our soil through our livestock. So, our chickens and our pigs primarily are our main composting teams, and our inputs are through the food Mm. that we provide those animals to eat. And then the benefit that we get is the manure that they put out the other end. Um, And that manure comes out directly onto the pasture. Mm. So, our pastured hens are moving across the landscape. We have 2,000 hens on the farm in flocks of 500, moving every five to 10 days into a new location. And so those chooks, one thing chooks do very well is poo. (laughs) They produce a huge (laughs) amount of manure every year. In fact, for every thousand birds, they produce around 20 tons of chook manure every year. So, you know, if you do the maths, we, we put down, yeah, we put down about 40 tons of manure across our landscape every year, which is highly nutrient rich and full of nitrogen, phosphorus and, you know, the, all the NPK, the whole the whole bit. And so that's our primary fertilizer. Yeah, and then we also, so that then, um, once those chooks leave that location, we will then plant a crop in behind that and utilize that manure that the chooks have left behind. And then our mm. pigs are the same. So our pigs are located quite high up on our landscape. Our farm is a undulating sort of hilly farm, not super hilly but a sloping farm. So we locate our pigs quite high up on our landscape so that as we feed them, when they pass that through their system, we call our pigs four-legged compost bins. They process that food and then put the manure out onto the landscape. And then when it rains, that manure then is dispersed across the rest of our farm. Quite amazingly how that manure builds fertility within our soil. So they're really our two main inputs. We Currently, because our soil is heavily degraded, in fact there's records on this farm uh, have been plowed plowed up for over one hundred and twenty years, so it 's been under the plow for a long long time so there 's mm-hmm. a lot of topsoil that 's been lost, a lot of soil health that's you know the, the soil is pretty tired and pretty exhausted, so we 're trying to help it as best we can to build up um, strength again so whenever we plant a crop, we also add in organic fertilisers and so they're things like worm manure pellets and believe it or not we even buy in mm. choke manure pellets and add them directly into the soil with our <laughs> seeds to help them grow um, so it's all about building biology into that soil so we use natural amendments mm. we're developing a, a large hot composting system at the moment and in the hope that as we move forward we'll build that bigger and bigger and start to broadcast that around the farm as well but that's an early stage, and we're learning as we mm. go with that one. But yeah, we need to produce a fair bit of that stuff over time so yeah. that we can but it, we're really excited about where that can go. One of the things we do is we collect mm. a whole heap of waste stream or food waste from food manufacturers in in Brisbane here and bring it back to the farm and either use it as as a food source or put it into the composting systems, and we've got a a big thousand litre worm farm as well, which produces worm juice which we then put on as a foliar spray. So that's probably the main amendments. A big thing for us as a small farm is minimising our expenses. So we try to utilise as many natural systems as we can because the minute we start buying in huge amounts of add-ins, that really makes the financial viability of our farm pretty difficult.
0: And that can't be underestimated at all. What sort of grasses and other plants are in your pasture that your animals feed on? Yeah, cool. So
1: it's, it's a very broad mix and it's ever-changing as our, as our landscape heals itself. So to give you a bit of a breakdown, to paint the picture of what our farm looks like, we've got about 300 acres and almost exactly half of that, 150 acres, is ex-farming land. So if you, you picture a classic farmed farm opened, almost zero trees present with a whole heap of what they call contour banks, which when the farm was ploughed continuously, these banks are put in at every 50 metres across the landscape going down the hill to stop the soil washing away. And it, that that 150 acres is very tired, very exhausted. Some areas there is no topsoil left and it's into subsoil because we're on a sloping block. You know, the natural thing is if, if you're ploughing paddocks and then it rains, well, the soil heads down. And so in those areas – and then the other half, the other 150 acres is more hilly, stonier country, and it's made up of remnant vegetation, so a lot of iron barks and grey box gum and native grasses. So it's it's a really – that's my favourite part of the farm is the back hilly country because (laughs) it's just beautiful native vegetation, beautiful abundant wildlife and flora and fauna. And so up in those areas there's – the predominant grass we grow here is called Queensland bluegrass and then there's a whole range of herbs and forbs and vines and legumes growing in amongst those grasses. Some other grasses, are kangaroo grass and wallaby grass and bits and pieces that are slowly coming back as we manage that landscape more effectively so we don't set stock, which means we don't stick a cow in a paddock and leave them there forever. We're moving all the time. So that gives all of those those more fragile grasses time to recover and, and return. And so that's what we're seeing. And then if, I, if we jump back to that farmed land, so what we have to look at is that farmland has spent 120 years growing single species or monocultured cereal and grain crops. And so what we're trying to help that soil to wake up again and start to grow perennial, ultimately perennial grasses and and trees and all those sorts of things. But that process takes a long, slow period of time. And so we're on the journey of succession. So at the moment in, the, in those areas, we will grow what we call a cover crop, a diverse cover crop. So we will plant 10 to 12 species of cereals, grasses, legumes, a species called centipods. And so all sorts of, all myriad of, of plants will put them in all together so that they grow in partnership in symbiotic, relationships to help stimulate soil biology and health and then along with them is a whole myriad of what we call what the general mindset is weeds but we call them less desirable plants but they're incredibly (laughs) important in terms of the health of the soil so we let everything grow we don't spray or remove those plants because we see them as integral to the, the ultimate soil health and then as we move forward. And we're just starting to see it now about, you know, seven years into our journey, we're starting to see perennial grasses returning to that landscape. So we're starting to grow grasses. Purple pigeon is one of the things. It's not a native grass, but it's starting to return. So at some stage, it's been put into the landscape and it's starting to return. And, you know, the blue is returning and kangaroo grass and all those sorts of things are starting to return to the landscape, which is beautiful. And so with time, we believe that that, that cultivated country will heal. But it's a, slow, a long, slow process and yeah, we're getting there gradually.
0: I guess, you know, when you hear grass-fed beef, it doesn't necessarily just mean grass. There can be a lot of different sort of things in the mix there that it's eating, so it's quite a wide, varied diet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the, uh, a better phrase would be to use the term salad bar beef. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, uh, yes.
0: <laughs> salad bar the, beef.
1: <laughs> the, more, the more diverse... So, this is a big thing that we talk about on our farm diversity 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 it's critical, so you mm-hmm. know just like if you imagine if all you ate was wheat bits every day, you'd get pretty sick of it and be that yeah. grain or grass, a cow is looking to meet its mineral and vitamin needs by browsing and finding different things to meet the because th- every plant will will have different minerals and And elements to it and a cow far better than us can tell what it needs and it is able to select plants and herbage dependent on what what it's 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 needing at the time and it's quite amazing to watch an animal Mm. move through a, a pasture of diverse species you know and some of our pastures could have 20 to 30 species in them and they will select the plant that they are looking for because they, they, they pick up. However they do mm-hmm. it, I, I really don't know, but they're far smarter than us. And they they select that plant for their <laughs> for their immediate need. It's quite astounding.
0: Yeah, my dad has a cattle farm on the sunny coast and he says the same thing that he sees this the cows, yeah, choosing one plant type that they're gonna yeah. go and eat. That oh, is incredible.
1: Yeah, it's quite amazing. And and you can it can change throughout the day too, from morning to evening.
0: So we've talked a little bit about sort of working with the native flora and fauna in your area. Can you sort of touch on that a little bit more for us? How, how do you do that?
1: I guess what we're trying to what we're trying to do on our farm is is be a a participant in in the overall ecosystem that we farm in and so that that's about partnering with everything not just the things that we're trying to achieve but but trying to be a patient attentive observer and 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 watch and work with the the native animals and plants and yeah flora and fauna that that were here before us and that that are actually regenerating as we practice the way that we farm so some of the things that we do we we plant a lot of pollinator species in our cropping so we we run multi-species cropping we don't ever plant a monoculture when we're planting Seeds, and so we always make sure that we put in amongst that things that aren't necessarily fodder for for cows or pigs or chooks, but actually there to to foster habitat for for bees and bugs and grubs and 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 animals that are that are cohabitating our landscape with us. And we're also in the process of replanting a huge area of our landscape to trees, both native. Trees that are in, that are endemic in this area, but also other other tree species that are going to help us transition our landscape back towards the uh, the natural system that was here prior to white colonial settlement. Um, so yeah, that, that's just a few of the things. We we don't we're really trying hard to to partner with our our landscape, and that means about working out how we can farm in a way that it, that is uh, respectful to the local flora and fauna.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful how you're sort of saying that yes, the cows need certain types of plants, but there is still space on that land for other plants that they don't necessarily eat.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the 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 key to that one of the things that we bit of a mantra that we chant here is that diversity is the key to resilience and ultimately abundance. So, mm-hmm. you know, although there may be plants that are that are flowering that aren't essentially the most nutritionally beneficial to that cow or to that pig or to that chicken that mm. we're actually generating an income from, what that, what that plant is doing is it's fostering diversity, both in providing mm. um, habitat for bugs and grubs that are our pollinators and that ultimately gives us more resilience in the long term. And uh, as at the same time, that diversity of plant species is feeding all of that flora and fauna underneath the Soil as well down in the earth, and that builds us a healthier, richer soil, which ultimately gives us healthier, richer plants and animals.
0: Yeah, I was sort of talking with uh, Paul and Linda from a company called Green Life Soil Co, and we did an episode on permaculture. And some of these things that you're sort of saying seem to be in line with permaculture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we um, we probably draw from a very uh, a rich and diverse handbook but permaculture definitely plays a part in what directs us you know along with a whole range of other things natural sequence farming holistic planned grazing all these sorts of things but yeah we, what we're really trying seeking to do is to take all of these tools have the a rich deep and full toolbox you know so that as we come up against a challenge
0: mm-hmm. or
1: something that we we don't we're not aware of or or know the answer to we can draw on a whole broad sp- you know wide range of of uh, skills and tools and knowledges in order to help us mm. wade through that challenge so yeah oh. permaculture definitely is is mm. part of part of the uh, some principles that guide guide the practices on our farm for sure
0: yeah totally and sort of part of that diversification is that you're doing something called csa or community supported agriculture can you explain what that term means randall
1: yeah, absolutely. So, community supported agriculture is a really uh, something very, very uh, dear to our heart. But it, it's a it's a, uni- a unique way of farmers engaging with their the community that they feed. So we talk we talk about on the farm about building an intimate relationship with our animals, our landscape, and the community in which we're part of, and the people that we feed. And so, community supported agriculture is a way in which we distribute our food to. The eater, or the, our our community, and so the the idea is that people who are consuming our food sign up and become part of the the farming system, which means that they're they're assuming some of the risk in the process of the food production, and so they might sign up for for generally our CSA is for six or twelve months, and I guess you know. A simple way to describe it is like a wine club. So they they agree to to paying a a monthly membership. But what that monthly membership does is it gives security to the farmer. So he knows that he's got, you know, we currently have 50 families who are part of our CSA membership program. And so we know that we have the security of that income, which helps us to plan forward over the 12-month period. So we know we need exactly this much meat. We need exactly these many eggs. To meet the demand for that those farmers uh, for those eaters, our our community, and then what it does is that those community members, the eaters, are then invested in our farm as well. And so, as part of that membership, we deliver to them on a monthly basis a, a, a box full of the produce that we produce. And so, the the idea is that it's the consumer is sharing in the risk and the reward of food production. So to explain that out, I guess if let's say we have a really lean year, so we've just come through 3 years of intense drought and in fact the the driest period in living memory in our region. So that has meant that we've had leaner years. So it might mean that the community supported agriculture members get a little bit less in their box each month, but they accept that responsibility because they understand that this is part of a period of of uh, scarcity, but they also know that at at some stage there'll be a period of abundance. And so they're sharing in that risk with the farmer and sort of removing all of that load that the farmer often has to take in order to, to help us find a better relationship between the eater and the producer. Other things we do as part of that, we actually open our farm up to those CSA members and they come to the farm two, three, four times a year. And they they take part in tree planting events. We have a big CSA celebration here once a year where we, we thank everyone for their support. We have a great big feast on the farm and we talk about things that we might need to change or develop or do better for the following year. And so it's just a beautiful way of connecting community with the act of food production.
0: Mm. And there will be links in the show notes for people to sort of learn a little bit more about CSA in general and to also sign up for you guys' CSA program
1: yeah that'd be great we'd we'd love to uh, welcome more CSA family members on board um, and there is a lot of farms more and more so small scale food producers around Australia and around the world that are that are utilizing a csa program and it's it really is a beautiful way of trying to fix a food system that, yeah, is a little bit damaged at the moment.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So can you speak a little bit about how the market is changing as we move into the 21st century and what is actually important to your eaters?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think we're, sh- we're seeing a huge shift. I think the reality is that from a farmer's point of view, over the next 10 to 15 years, there's going to be a massive movement in land ownership, in reality, you know, the average age for farmers in Australia is around 65 years of age. So that means that there's going to be a change pretty soon. And as food citizens, the decision really lays with the, the consumer to decide who's going to be the producer of our food. And we're experiencing more and more people with some serious concerns in relation to that. Because the reality is, is that it's either going to go down the path of industrial food systems, where they'll control all the means of production, or we have to somehow find a way to get young, enthusiastic farmers onto the land so that they can be growing our food in a way that's connected with community. And so I think we're at a really exciting crossroads, but you know, now's the time, and it's, it's up to the consumer, really, to drive that forward. Because as much as we have these principles that direct our farming on the farm, unless there's a demand for it, we just simply won't survive. Because the reality is that farming in the way that we do, the price has to be slightly higher. We're we're moving away from this mindset of cheap food and trying to uh, help people see that there's an importance in nutritionally dense food. Food that's been grown slower, and in in partnership with the landscape and the animals, and, and all of, and all of those processes. But that we we there needs to be a connection with the eater as well, in order to ensure that that has viability into the future. Does that sort of answer your question, Dan?
0: Yeah, it does, mate. And it sort of makes me think that as a consumer, I would sort of think of a a CSA program or, you know, even just smaller scale farms where you get to sort of, you know, go to the markets, shake the farmer's hand and say, you know, g'day, how you going? I would sort of view that sort of a product as a premium product. Can you speak on what your thoughts are in regards to this sort of way of farming as being viewed as premium by consumers?
1: Yeah, cool. Yeah, I guess I guess it is to some degree at the moment, but I would really, you know, I would I'd love to see the fact that that, that whole concept moving. I think that this this style of farming shouldn't be considered premium, but we, it's essential in terms of the long-term viability of of agriculture. You know, we're in a in, we're in a climate crisis, where things are going pretty pear-shaped pretty quickly you know we're experiencing it here on the farm you know we we to give you an example we're supposed to be in la nina year this year out on our farm and in and that means generally an above average rainfall well we haven't even hit our average rainfall yet this year you know we've we've actually below average so that's a little concerning and so we need to do some things pretty quickly but yeah so to get back to your point around premium versus uh, w- whether our product is premium i really do hope that we get to a point where this is the normal way of food production and i think as we do that then the food will become more affordable as demand increases and we start to 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 find ways of valuing food more than just price you know if we can find a way of valuing food based on nutritional density or or its footprint on the environment because there's a whole different way different there's a whole number of different ways in which we can value food over and above the price you pay for it at the shopping centre because it, it, the simple price doesn't determine what has the, what that impact that, that food product in terms of its manufacture has had on the environment.
0: Mm. And when you're talking about nutritional density there, I guess cows, sheeps, pigs, animals, chickens, these animals are going to be... More densely nutritious, depending on the variety of foods that they get to eat
1: yeah the food that they eat and the way in which they live and the ground on which they 're on all of those mm. things are going to have an impact an impact on its on their nutritional density on whether they're carrying residues of chemicals in their in their meat and in their system and that's for plants and and animals really and so you know if an animal mm. is, is provided with a a rich and diverse life, able to fully express its inner self, you know, being the chookiness of the chook or the, the pigginess of the pig, you know, a pig that's able to get out into, the, into soil that is chemical free and, and with a rich, diverse range of plants growing on and in it to wallow in soil and, and get about and eat bugs, grubs and all of that. All of that nutrition and, and nutrient is going to permeate through into the, the flesh of the pig. And if you contrast that to a pig that spends its entire life um, force-fed, antibiotic-laden grain products inside a shed on concrete floor, you know, which has got all of its manure sitting below it, you know, there's a whole heap of ammonia that's coming up through the floor. I know which which pork I'd like to eat, put it that way.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more, mate. Yeah. So I guess... A lot of people might be listening to this now. They might be farmers. They might be wanting to get into agriculture. Do you have any advice for people who are looking to get into a small-scale farm similar to you, even with a CSA, sort of a, an approach to things?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, There's it's it's a challenging, a very challenging process because mm. of the 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 limitations to entry. You know, you need a huge amount of capital to get started, and you know, and Janita and I didn't have that when we when we jumped jumped out of the boat and ha- have had a crack. But you know, start slowly. Spend some time with other farmers doing things that you admire. You know, most people within the the uh, regenerative ag or agroecology movement are hugely passionate about sharing their knowledge, and they want to see more people entering into this food system and this way of producing food. And I think, yeah, it, uh, it, it is such a great, enjoyable, challenging, and all of those words, journey to head out, head on. We absolutely love it, but it's not without its challenges. And, and yeah. financially, it can be incredibly difficult. You, you do feel yeah. as if you're, you're walking on a knife edge all the time. But it is, I think, immersing yourself into these systems and talking and, and spending time with other people doing it. And then in terms of the actual access to land, there's such a such a range of ways in which we can get into farming these days. There's a making access with other farmers that will allow you to utilise a small parcel of the land to sort of cut your teeth on. And the beauty of a stacked integrated mm-hmm. farming system is that you know, you can bring in an enterprise onto someone else's landscape that's going to be beneficial to their land and also generate an income for you as a beginning farmer. That's pretty exciting. You know, in a lot of our regional areas are, are slowly dying as as industrial agriculture takes over and it reduces the farming systems down to machinery and you only have one person sort of running around running machines, whereas these stacked integrated Agroecological farming systems demand a lot more labor. And it really excites me to think about um, our regional areas coming back to life as more and more people come in and start different uh, agroecological enterprises. And um, yeah, that to me is pretty exciting.
0: Hmm, absolutely. I have heard that there's a bit of a movement of people sort of leaving the cities and going back out into. And- into regional areas after sort of this coronavirus um, lockdown experience of being locked in the city so there might be a lot of opportunity there
1: yeah absolutely and I, and i you know it's pretty exciting and you know there is yeah it's inter- it's been really interesting to see how people are, are starting to look towards the regional areas and relocating away from the city centers and and looking for a different way of life a, a way of being and mm-hmm. you know i think <laughs> These integrated farming systems have got a, a real potential to offer aspiring farmers an, an, a way to get into agriculture I mean, that can can start off small and grow as your knowledge grows.
0: Step one for someone who might be listening to this and sort of feeling a little bit inspired might be to follow the links in the show notes to your website and also follow you guys on Facebook because that is actually quite inspiring to look at what you guys are doing and some of the photos that you're coming up with and. Yeah, all that sort of yeah, stuff. Cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's more and more um, amazing guys out there that you know doing YouTube and things like that. But yeah, well, yeah, I appreciate uh, the support definitely. Hmm.
0: So, what are some other guys that you would recommend on YouTube and stuff like that?
1: Oh, wow! So there's there's a great uh, um, there's an organisation that that I'm a part of called AFSA, Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. And they've got a pretty cool program going on at the moment on their Instagram page, where they're introducing different farmers every week, and you can t- that different farmer takes over their Instagram page, and that's really cool because each week you get to see a new farmer doing new and exciting things, and that's pretty inspirational. You know, there's the there's the classic guys around the world that are pretty well known in the region. Things people like Will Harris from White Oak Pastures, Chris Newman from Silvernac Farm. I think I said that right. And just they're, Tammy Jonas, she's down in Victoria. There's just such a, a broad range. You get out there because on social media, a lot of these guys are doing a whole heap of things, and yeah, you you, you get really inspired. There's actually a really good book that that Assa wrote called um, "Farming Democracy," and uh, if you can track that book down, it's it's got stories of um, five or six different Australian farmers and how they got started, and, and What's really great about that book is it gives you all the financials as well as the, the pitfalls and all the challenges all right. that each farmer did to get started. So if if you're a, if you're an aspiring <laughs> regent farmer, um, yeah, that book well worth a read.
0: So I always like to ask our guests just before we wrap the episode up. Randall, is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about?
1: Yeah, cool. There probably is. I'm just going to try to find it because it's um, it's a statement made by Will Harris, who I mentioned just before, and he talks about the fact that we're in a unique time and place where we, uh, as consumers and as eaters, we, we never before have we had the opportunity to make a choice about how we engage with our environment. So I'll just read you what, what Will Harris has said. For the first time, eaters have had the knowledge to choose to or choose not to do their part in helping to mitigate climate change. There are, there are different levels to choose from. The first level, you can choose to continue contributing to the problem. The production of emissions will continue to increase if people continue to eat processed food and industrially processed meat. I hope that we don't have too many of people who choose that option. Secondly, we can choose to do a little less harm going forward. Production of these emissions can be reduced if people cease to eat industrially produced meat and highly processed foods. This is a bit of a weak effort. Third, we can choose to do no harm at all. Production of these emissions can be completely eliminated if people would simply cease eating anything. (laughs) This is a pretty hard choice. (laughs) Or four, you can choose to correct the harm that has been done. The production of these emissions can be reversed if people ate only regeneratively or agroecologically produced meat and vegetables. And this is what I think is the correct answer. So my challenge to everybody who's listening is to try to find your farmer, put your hand in their hand, because for every hand that touches food that's not the farmers or the consumer, waste is created. So form those relationships directly with your food producer, and we can start to turn around this climate challenge we're currently experiencing
0: absolutely randall thank you so much for coming on the show mate i hope our listeners have learned a lot about different ways that farmers can and are using holistic methods to sort of turn back the clock in terms of climate ecological and social damage
1: yeah absolutely i hope so you know there's there's more and more farmers now that are really seeking to be patient attentive observers in their landscape looking at how they farm and produce food in a way that's partnering with our environment and ecosystems. And really, you know, farmers are your biggest landholders on the, across the planet. And if we support them to make these environmental shifts, then, yeah, we're, uh, it's exciting times ahead. It doesn't have to be catastrophic. And so, yeah, I, I hope that people have, have learnt something in relation to that and how there are farmers that are, that are aspiring to be part of the solution.
0: Well, thanks, Randall, mate. I look forward to sort of following your journey and learning more about CSA as I sort of have only just heard about this recently. So I'm looking forward to learning more. Thank you very much. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate it. You might have noticed that the audio changed halfway through this episode. And that's because we had some internet difficulties where half of the episode wasn't uploaded correctly. So a big thank you to Randall for being generous enough to come back on the show and repeat himself so that we could share the full episode with you guys. There's a link in the show notes if you wanted to get in touch and thank him personally. Depending on where you're listening, the links in the show notes may or may not be clickable. The best place to find clickable show notes is from the podcast section of plantsgrowhere.com. Just look for the lowercase i icon in the podcast player. Thank you so much for coming back on, mate. That was um, – uh, my heart sort of dropped when I realized that we'd have to do this. Again. <laughs> Thank you so much for being so generous. Oh,
1: no worries, mate. I appreciate it. Yeah, ho- hopefully it, it – um, yeah, it should, it should have worked this time, hopefully, eh?